Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Evan Medeiros, Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies and the Kling Family Senior Fellow in U.S.-China Relations at Georgetown University. He is editor and contributing author to the recent book, Cold Rivals, The New Era of U.S.-China Strategic Competition. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, joined as always by Jude Blanchett of CSIS and by our mutual friend, Professor Evan Medeiros. Evan's the Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies, and the Kling Family Senior Fellow in U.S.-China Relations at Georgetown University. He is also Senior Advisor with the Asia Group and served for six years on the NSC staff as Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and then as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Asia. I didn't even make it to five years. I don't know how you did it. He's the editor and contributing author of an important new book, Cold Rivals, The New Era of U.S.-China Strategic Competition. We're going to dive into that book. We're going to talk about the nature of U.S.-China Strategic Competition. Maybe do a little bit of fantasy football about the China team we need right now. Yes, I like it. Let's start with you, Evan. How did you end up going from a kid in Rhode Island to being in the White House with President Obama and then at Georgetown? What's the journey? Was it luck? Well, first, uh, great to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be able to talk about the new book. So I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island in the mid-1980s. And as a child of the Cold War, I was absolutely fascinated by arms control and nonproliferation, right? It was Reagan, Gorbachev, Reykjavik, everything that was going on at the time really fascinated me. I was a very active and very competitive debater in high school in international politics, international security were a big part of what we did. And so, you know, I, when I graduated from college, I got this great fellowship at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They weren't sure where to stick a philosophy major. And so I got put with the guy running the nonproliferation program because I sort of had this interest from debate in nonproliferation. And so you got to remember, this is back in the early 1990s, right? Nobody had email. The interwebs was sort of a new thing. Think tanks were sleepy places. No such thing as a podcast. And so the guy was working for Leonard Spector, and he used to write a book about every two years about global proliferation developments. And he said, draft the chapters on China and North Korea. And I was just sort of fascinated by the fact that very, very little was known about these countries. Even less was known about foreign and national security policy, let alone arms control and nonproliferation. We went up to New York one week to talk to the Chinese mission to the UN about arms control. And you would have thought that we had landed on Mars because even at the UN, they weren't sure. And so I sort of developed this bug of interest mixing my functional interest in international security with this budding regional interest in China. And so when I went to grad school, started studying Chinese and sort of learning more about Chinese foreign national security policy, the PLA, et cetera. So when we ask people this question, they often say, oh, you know, I loved anime and got into Japan. Or what you often hear is, I studied Russia, and then the Cold War ended, so I switched to China. But you started with— Nothing that romantic. No, No. you started with the geekiest of geeky subjects, arms control. Yep. And then added China on. And as as, you you and Victor and I tell our students at Georgetown— If you're a regionalist, you really got to have one foot in a functional area. But you started with that. That's right. I did. And so I had to pick up Chinese later in life, 24, 25. But I always told myself that if 1.3 billion people can speak this language, (laughs) I can speak this language too. And you guys will remember this. You know, we were studying 
Japanese and Chinese back in the day when there were no electronic tools that made this easier, right? It was literally, if there's one character that you don't know in a sentence, you got to figure out where the radical is, look up the radical. I mean, it was a very, very time-consuming process. I still remember I was studying at the SOAS in London, you know, translating one of my first People's Daily articles, and it, it must have taken me a week. I mean, it just took forever. I still have my Nelson's. You guys probably had something like this from Andrew, my Nelson's Dictionary, which has all the radicals and the characters. And I sort of tremble when I see it on the shelf because it was – and now I write stuff, as you do, I'm sure, and it pops into Japanese. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, just, I can text in Chinese from my iPhone. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it was funny. Back in the day, Jude will remember this. They had two ways that you could Romanize Chinese, right? There was Pinyin, which we use now, and then an old – system called Wade Giles. And I'm convinced that those guys took narcotics because I have no idea how they got that romanization from what we now use. Opium. Yeah, Probably opium. absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. <laughs> so the book is great. Congratulations. It's really unique. I'm trying to think of the last academic book like this with dual authors assessing the relationship. Maybe Tangled. Nina David, could be. The, uh, the one I, you I, did. I worked on that book. That would have been 10, 12 years ago. Yep. But Tangled Titans that David Shambaugh did yeah. had a couple Chinese. But you're right. It's been about a decade, and it was time. We tried, as you'll recall, to do a, a book like that here at CSIS a few years ago. It was it was virtually impossible. Frankly, the Chinese authors were constrained in what they were allowed to do. So how did you do it? I mean, how did you get this candid scholarly assessment of competition with authors from both countries? Well, you have to—I mean, you have to pick the authors that you deal with, both on the American side and the Chinese side, very carefully. You have to pick people that are smart— honest, earnest, and we're willing to commit to this project. And I framed it as, you know, this is something that hadn't been done in, in nearly a decade. And the core questions at the heart of the book are important ones, right? It's how did we get here? How did we end up in this new era of strategic competition? What are its main attributes going to be? And where is it going to take us in the relationship? And, you know, I tried to pair up you know, you'll see in the book it's structured around historical questions, diplomatic security questions, economic questions, technology, military questions, and tried to sort of pair up Americans and Chinese. And it just – it worked well. So you go through – and we're going to want to probe these more, but the three-part analysis you really need to understand a relationship like this, structure, agency, the roles of leaders and officials and so forth. But you really focus a lot on contingency and say we are one crisis away from this relationship tipping into sort of the U.S.-Soviet relationship in the 50s. How much do you worry about that? Is that sort of your main takeaway is, is this is much more precarious than people realize? Well, in the final chapter, there's three final chapters that look at the future. And in mine, I say given where we are today – Given that we're at these early stages of this strategic competition, the factors of interaction and agency are particularly important. And that's why I worry about the risk of an accident or miscalculation. But interestingly, Dick Betts, the famous professor of Columbia who has a wonderful chapter comparing what he calls the old Cold War and the new Cold War, you know, he points out that you know, the components of competition in the old Cold War were very different than in the new Cold War. And back then, it was all about the risk of deliberate conflict, right? The Fulda Gap armed conflict in Europe. You know, and he makes a similar point that I do, which is in this new Cold War, everybody is worried principally about an accident or a miscalculation. 
So you just anticipated my next question, which is how should we or how do you think about the appropriate framing or, or description of the bilateral relationship right now? Do you take that it is a new Cold War? Is that the best framing? And what does calling it a Cold War, how does that help us versus trying to find a, a different articulation or framework to describe the bilateral relationship? You know, Jude, it's a great question because that phrase is such a heavily weighted phrase. It has so much meaning to people. We don't actually use it that much in the book because it can be a distraction, right? You go off into a cul-de-sac and debate, was it a, is it going to be a Cold War or not? The book actually starts by exploring just the concept of competition. And ironically, the concept of competition in international relations has not been well explored. In fact, it's deeply under-theorized. And in the first substantive chapter, I actually explore the whole concept of competition, like what actually is competition in international relations and how does it apply to the U.S.-China relationship? So we try to move away from the buzzwords because they can be distracting. I mean, personally myself, I have no problem calling it a Cold War small c, small w, in the sense that if you think of the Cold War as a genus and not a species, right, it's just a type of event in international politics as opposed to the Cold War. But if you treat it as a genus, not a species, sure, that's where we are today. But what we try to explore in the book is just understanding competition, right? And I think one of the biggest contributions of the book in that first chapter is I just, I talk about competition having three very basic conditions. Very simply, you need two powers with perceived contention. Number two, an effort to gain advantage. Number three, the pursuit of an outcome or a good that's generally not available. So competition exists when gaining access to some scarce item confers a relative advantage of one state over the other. And so what we found was as we try and apply a very basic but important definition of competition to the U.S.-China relationship, a puzzle emerged because based on that definition, there has been competition in the U.S.-China relationship for a very, very long time. We could debate about the 80s, but certainly since the 90s. And so the question we explore a lot is if there's been competition, you know, at least since 1990 in the U.S.-China relationship, why is it that it's gotten so bad right now? Maybe I could ask a question to both of you building on that, Evan, which is with that diagnosis or conclusion that actually with properly understood competition, we now know that we were competing much earlier. There is a and has been for the last several years a, a sort of engagement failed thesis here. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is we were naive because China knew it was competing. It masked it well, but we were so caught up in our, our sort of end of history modernization theory, you know, Whiggish view that China inexorably would be converging with our set of norms. You know, having both been in the trenches and recognizing that it's easy for us in 2022 or 2018 or 2019 to look back and say, aha, in a policy role forward looking, yeah. can you talk about where or why you agree or disagree with that framing of engagement failed and we should have known it earlier. And if you disagree, why was it harder to come to that conclusion or diagnosis when you're in the trenches? Maybe, Michael, maybe I'll start with you. Well, it gets back to the relative importance of structure, agency, and contingency. And I think Evan and I are both 
realist in the sense that our analysis starts with power and structure. But, Absolutely. But the problem with this conflict was inevitable is that's sort of where it ends. It sort of assumes in the, like, in the Thucydides trap thesis or some structural realist frame that this competition was inevitable. And if you've studied history, you know that you know, nothing's inevitable. There is contingency. Leadership decisions matter. I don't think engagement was a complete failure. We prevailed in the Cold War, first and foremost because of our alliances and our internal strengths, but also because of China. I mean, without the China card, we wouldn't have gotten out of Vietnam and restored our leadership position in Asia, wouldn't have pushed the Soviets into arms control. The economic miracle in Asia, in my view, starts with Japan, critical role for Korea, but we would not have the prosperity we have in Asia right now without China. And looking forward to the future, if we are going to bend history and get back to a more productive relationship with China, we're going to need the three, four, what, 500 million Chinese in the middle class to be part of the solution. And that wouldn't have happened without engagement. So it's sort of like uh, Deng said about Mao, you know, seven parts good, three parts bad, maybe five parts good, five parts bad. But if you do a what if alternate history, what if we had not pursued the China card vis-a-vis the Soviets? What if we hadn't created economic prosperity in Asia through engagement? It'd be a less stable and, and prosperous world, frankly. Can I reframe the question then? I think the argument now is less that the conflict was inevitable, but more China had a strategy wherein it was basically biding its time, engaging with the United States simply so it could sort of accumulate power, wealth, influence, but it had no real intention. And so we were playing two different games. Yeah. You know, I think that's the argument. So, so should you have known that in the mid-2000s? So of course we knew it. And I'm sure the Obama administration knew it. The first thing President Bush said to me when I met him was that he brought me into the NSC because I'm a Japan and allies guy, and we're going to work on the China relationship, but we're not at all confident this is going to end well, and we need to strengthen our alliances continuously. And that was a policy that goes back to the 40s, but was the Clinton administration's Nye Initiative, which Kurt Campbell and Joe Nye and others worked on. We were always, I don't like the word hedging, because hedging suggests somehow, you know, you got a shotgun in the closet for a <laughs> dangerous day. We were shaping, we were balancing, we were, and now, and it probably at about the right level. So there wasn't naivete, and then you have to come back to contingency and agency. In my view, having been in most of the president's meetings with Zhang and, and with Hu, and everyone would know better, but Xi Jinping brought a very different set of assumptions and leadership style that mattered. And then contingency. I think that the global financial crisis in particular transformed the way the Chinese thought about international power and the United States. So the structural problems we were not naive about, you know, there are things we should have done differently, definitely, but we had a, an allies and balance of power and influence strategy for that. But the contingency and agency really matters. Evan? Yeah, so Mike and I are in broad agreement. I mean, look, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's easy to look back and say, ah, we should have known what we know today. But the reality is, is U.S. engagement policy was never exclusively an engagement policy. As Mike rightly pointed out, right, by the late 1990s, even the Clinton administration, right, with the Nye Initiative was already saying, we're not entirely sure how China is going to sort itself out. So let's start to bolster and improve our alliances as a hedge. Number two, you know, engagement and hedging, which was, I think, sort of the main post-Cold War strategy toward China, though the relative percentage of engaging versus hedging changed over time as Chinese behavior changed. But that was sort of seen as the best bet because what was the alternative? That the United States in 1995 was going to go to the rest of the world and say, we're pretty convinced these guys are going to turn out badly, so let's 
isolate and contain them, there would have been absolutely no support from that, in particular from the biggest advantage we have now, allies and partners in East Asia and in Europe. So it's not really clear that the alternative to the engage hedge thesis was viable. And then as Mike rightly pointed out, China changed. I mean, the reality of the relationship, and this is something that we try to hit home in the book, is that the sources of competition in this relationship have expanded and diversified as Chinese capabilities and ambitions improved. And then you had Xi Jinping. I mean, I have a little bit of a alternate view from some of my friends, colleagues in the China Watcher community who say Xi Jinping, no Xi Jinping, it wouldn't have mattered. China was on a trajectory. And I just disagree with that. Having worked very closely with Hu Jintao, Hu Jintao and his advisors were tapping the brakes constantly on what the PLA was doing all over the place. Xi Jinping had a different view of both Chinese ambitions, right? I mean, he very clearly very publicly talks about China as a global power. And then the way he chose to use Chinese capabilities and in particular, you know, his risk tolerance using economic coercion, gray zone tactics and stuff like that. So, I mean, the way I put it is like China changed and as a result, our policy needs to change. So this sort of ex post facto look back, final point I'll make here, Jude, is this idea that like China had a plan from day one. I mean, anyone that looks at the history of China's strategy post-Cold War, so post-89, right? Soviet Union collapses, you have Tiananmen. I mean, Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese leadership were focused on self-preservation. The idea that in the early 1990s, they developed some sort of grand plan to displace the United States and overtake the world. I just haven't seen any evidence. Now, what I do agree, and this is where Rush Doshi's book is very good, I do agree that even as the Chinese were trying to re-engage the international community and improve relations with America, Japan, other major powers, the Chinese were still incredibly worried about U.S. power, and they wanted to block and resist American efforts to constrain them. And that was a consistent feature of Chinese foreign policy. But constraining American efforts to contain China is different than the Chinese trying to displace the U.S. globally. Now, they eventually got there, but I think a lot of that, again, has to do with capabilities, ambitions, and the arrival of Xi Jinping. So strategic histories or the, the history or evolution of grand strategies is kind of a thing for me. I, you know, I wrote by More Than Providence in a book on hobby. Sorry for the plug. <laughs> but before I started by More Than Providence, I worked with a grad student at Georgetown to find Chinese histories of American grand strategy. And the Chinese histories point to every single thing we ever did as evidence that we had a containment strategy. Mm. And the individual sort of diplomatic, you know, archival documents or speeches said that. And they were connecting the dots from one to the next. But then when I wrote my book and really did a deep dive into the evolution of American strategic thought on Asia, yeah, you can find lots of think tank documents, policy planning documents, speeches by senators, members of the cabinet. But some of them, for example, in the late Carter years, the Pacific fleet commander had a strategy for containing the Soviets with a huge carrier and submarine buildup around Japan, which became the Reagan strategy, the maritime strategy. But in 1977, 78, people thought the guy was bat bleep nuts. He had no, no support outside of a narrow group of people on the Navy staff. So you can look at something like that and say, aha, mm. this was sort of a predetermined strategy. Strategy is contested, even in a authoritarian system. And that's why contingency and agency matters. What 
sort of advantages certain arguments, what leaders will grab certain arguments. So you'll find it was all there. Yeah. But I, th- I think you guys know better. It was much more contested. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the things that comes out very striking in this, many of the Chinese chapters is the role of the end of the Cold War, 9-11, global financial crisis, Trump, COVID, all of these things led the Chinese to start having very different views about the United States. And as you would imagine, the Chinese authors in the book really stressed Trump as a big turning point for them. From their perspective, it became clear that America and that the United States had fundamentally changed its perception of China. Yeah, I just very quickly, I, I you know, I was living in China of 08 through uh, That's right. 2013. And, and, you know, the discussion was shifting rapidly there. And you could also feel China trying to deal with all this contingency. I think it has a broad sort of direction of travel, but there's a lot of variation within that. And just one quick point, and Mike, I appreciate you saying it's important to listen to how the Chinese are actually thinking and talking out loud. You know, in the 1990s, every hardcore nationalist and conservative communist in the party was worried about WTO accession because they thought it was going to be this sort of universal acid that would eat away at party solidarity. So as we have this discussion here about how The Chinese always knew they wanted WTO to sort of get into the system, build power, and then overturn the system. That misses all the debate that was happening within China at the time. And I think, just Jude, to add to that, I mean, I think the Chinese, by the mid to late 2000s, were really surprised by how quickly their economy was growing and how much geopolitical influence they were getting from their global economic footprint. I mean, I can remember they were sort of struggling to deal with, wait, what, what is all this? Why are all these African countries and Latin American countries now coming to us and asking us to do more things for them? Evan, I wanted to ask you just a, a final question here. I'll turn it over to Mike on the competition framing. The week of the Biden-Chi meeting out at San Francisco, Chris Buckley had a really great piece earlier in the week, a few days prior, where he'd gone through and looked at Xi Jinping's internal speeches dating way back. Yeah, impressive piece of journalism. You know, and and finding that Xi Jinping, even before he becomes general secretary in late 2012, when he's on the standing committee, is already talking about sort of deep hostility or skepticism about the United States. You know, we need to sort of, we need to dig our heels in and prepare for struggle. During the the Biden-Xi meeting, however, and the portion of it which was on camera where Biden and Xi are giving their opening statements, you saw Biden basically say, look, we're, we're in a competition, so the question is how do we manage this? The Chinese and Xi Jinping publicly still oppose adopting that framing, right? They're still sort of saying we have a choice here. These two countries can work together. That seemed to clash with what we read in Chris's speech. Why do you think, for tactical, strategic reasons, Xi Jinping is unwilling to publicly accept the idea that there is a, an intense competition? I mean, this is an interesting, really interesting question, and it's a real anomaly in Chinese foreign policy because, I mean, the Chinese system is so hardwired to see the U.S.-China relationship in not just garden variety but highly competitive terms. And, you know, I worry that in the Leninists, in their political system, they actually need the U.S.-China relationship to be competitive in order to, you know, I mean, justify themselves and to improve their legitimacy. So let's all have no illusions about what their private internal conversation is about the U.S.-China relationship publicly. I think they're worried about or they want to project an image especially to the global south of responsibly managing this complex situation, not buying into the inevitability of conflict, 
I think it has to do with trying to create this public perception of tamping down the competitive dimensions of the relationship and that they are the responsible party in this. I think that's what's going on. But even that's starting to fade away. I mean, there was a line in the Chinese readout of the Biden-Xi meeting that basically opened the door to acknowledging the competitive dimensions of the relationship. But I think this is a small issue because what really matters is what the leaders in China think. And I have no doubt that they look at the relationship in these highly competitive terms. Well, as, as Xi Jinping said in March, the United States is trying to contain, suppress, and encircle China. Right. So I think that's pretty clear. So I want to pull you guys away from the celestial kingdom, if I could, <laughs> and start looking at the competition from the perspective of, of a Japan or an India or a Korea, you know, the pirates and barbarians. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is not just a bipolar U.S.-China strategic competition. I mean, the Japanese have been competing strategically with China for 2,000 years. Yeah. The Vietnamese say that Vietnam shaped the way it is from 3,000 years of China being on its back. And then, of course, India. So, Evan, how do you deal with the additional complexity of strategic competition of cold rivals who are, you know, not blue-red but also green? Are those other rivalries? Because this is not—the U.S. did not drive Japan— or India into strategic rivalry. They arrived at their own right. rivalrous <laughs> relationships because of circumstances in their own you know, history and contemporary interactions with China. So what does that multiplayer game do to this? Does it make it less stable, more stable? How does it affect? Yeah, so it depends, it depends which actor you're talking about. I think when it comes to some of our closest allies, Japan, Korea, Australia, I think that they can have a dampening influence on the competition because, as you rightly point out, Mike, these countries have a lot of experience dealing with China and their political systems demand that their leaders find the balance between economic and technological and ecological interdependence on the one hand and security competition on the other, right? There's no Vietnamese leader that gets in office without the ability to do that. That skill set, finding the balance, is not really privileged in the American political system. And so I think that because we're in the early stages of this strategic competition, because American and Chinese policymakers are still trying to figure out what the boundaries of the competition are, right? Where are we going to compete? How are we going to compete? These kinds of things. I think that our allies and partners coming to us, which they have done, and I think the Biden-Xi meeting was in part a result of that, and saying, like, look, It'd be good if you tap the brakes a little bit, you try and, you know, work out some of these issues and figure out ways that we can reduce the probability of an accident or a miscalculation. And we've seen that in recent years in the Biden administration with Japan, Korea, Australia, maybe even the Europeans. What you just said now about our system not privileging policy makers or experts who seek that balance yeah. is really interesting and important. So I want to ask you a, about your assessment of the field. So like me, you're a, an Asia scholar who's been in government. And how do you, looking at the China field, are we training China experts in the academy or in government who can have that balance but also be credible? How is the United States broad writ doing I mean, producing the expertise bit, we need? a little bit apples and oranges because – the balance is relevant to policymakers, less to scholars, right? And on the policymaker side, just to answer your very good question, Mike, it really has to do with the changing domestic political landscape in America. You know, the traditional buffers and stabilizers in the relationship have really reduced 
or declined in importance in the relationship. The role of economic interdependence, civil society, the business community, they just don't play the role they played before in part because large swaths of them have become very disenfranchised and frustrated with dealing with China. They haven't faded away entirely, but they've, you know, reduced their influence. And then you've seen, you know, the rise of different forces. I mean, I'm about to release a study next week through the Asia Society where I look at what I call the new domestic politics. And what's striking to me is how Congress has really stepped forward in a very significant way using both its oversight and its legislative capabilities. I mean, the number of pieces of legislation that Congress has passed on China and China-related issues is really off the charts. Hundreds, so, hundreds of bills. Uh, a few, At least two years ago, I was told, 200-some bills related well, to China. Those, The numbers of bills that have been put forward is well into the hundreds. But, I mean, think about the numbers that have passed. And increasingly now, Congress is getting very creative in passing a bunch of bills within the National Defense Authorization Act. So they're using new tactics. And my point is that this is sort of a new dimension of domestic politics. And the reality is, is because we're in the early stages of this competition where we're not exactly sure where we're going to compete, how we're going to compete, there's really no domestic consensus about strategic competition in the United States, right? How are China scholars doing yeah. shaping this debate? So as a Japan-Korea guy, I'll, I'll give you my view, which is that w with the exception of you and a few people, the Xi Jinping era really threw the China scholarly and expert community with the exception of you guys, into real disarray. <laughs> and I mean that, into real disarray. Really? You think in disarray? Well, there was an older generation of China scholars that was on a comfortable, not comfortable, but somewhat predictable trajectory, and that got broken. And I saw this, frankly, in the Japan field in the 80s when we went, we had intense strategic competition, then the Japanese bubble collapsed in the 90s, and the field was really confused for a decade or more. And there's good scholarship, I'm not saying there isn't, but... Are China experts and China scholars shaping this debate the way they should be? So there's two questions here. How's the field evolving and how is it shaping the debate? You know, shaping the debate is always a difficult thing to evaluate, right? How do any of us know if we actually have influence? What I would say is there are a couple different – and I want to get Jude's views on this. There are a couple different things going on in the field. Number one, the field has become very atomized in the sense that you've got – China economic experts, right? You got China political experts. You have China provincial experts. You've got PLA experts, right? That's a whole cottage field into itself. So the field's become a little bit atomized and at a time when I actually think we need more people that can integrate politics, security, and economics, right? Because we really need to understand how all of this is coming together. On yeah, the one I hand, use the word disarray, but the word atomized is better. And by the way, that's what happened in the Japan field in the 90s. After the intense, intense debates, the, the assumptions about Japan being wrong, people jumped into much narrower. They saw truth where they could find it, which is in data sets and case studies that were a little narrower. And it created a bit of a – there are very yeah, good I Japan mean, scholars now, but there was a period there where it was hard to find people who could see the forest for the trees. One of the wickets that I spend a lot of time on is the importance – and Jude, I know, appreciates this in, the, in his work – is the importance of integrating your view – of Chinese political security behavior with an understanding of China's economic trajectory. If you do not have a working knowledge of the Chinese economy and China's political economy, you really can't talk about leadership preferences, ambitions, or capabilities. And so, you know, on the one hand, the field's becoming atomized. On the other hand, 
among the group of scholars that do China security studies, I see an increasing number of scholars that are mixing regional and functional expertise, which I think is really great. You've got people like Isaac Cardin and Wendy Lutert that are doing great work on the Chinese Navy and Chinese ports. You know, Sheena Greitens bringing her expertise on authoritarian systems into our understanding of Chinese foreign policy. I mean, there are a lot of people, but I mean, I like the mixing of the regional and functional because I think that's a very powerful combination. And the reality is China is so big and so complicated that you need people. I think we need scholars that are prepared to have range intellectually. Yeah. Adam Nice is not bad in the sense that it is so complicated, you need that deep knowledge. But what you're saying is critical. You need people who can connect dots. Exactly. I want to ask another joint question, if I can, and maybe build You don't want to comment on the China field? Oh, you know, I was in China for most of the sort of period where we went into Xi Jinping and then development subsequently. I will say, I think folks who are watching this, the academic community is difficult because there's always a time lag when you're doing academic work. And so I think it's difficult to sort of always be at the cutting edge. I will say the sort of analysts, journalists watching this, I felt were moving in tandem with developments in China. And look, there was a paradigm shift that occurred in China. I agree with what we've said here that we've not been on a singular linear track starting in the Tang Dynasty. There have been disjunctures in the Chinese system, and Xi Jinping was a new agent who had different set of expectation risk tolerances. In China, It's not like everyone in the political system in 2012, 2013 knew who Xi Jinping was. That took time to evolve over the next sort of several years as he accumulated power and you started to see his pure policy preferences emerge. And I will say for me, the moment when it was the, oh, shit, was when Xi Jinping at the Sixth Plenum in 2016 got the title of core. And I remember texting with some of the China journalists, Chris Buckley and others, of a, oh, wow, This is a, okay, we are now definitely on a different plane and trajectory, one that looks much more like dictatorship than we thought we'd seen here. So I kind of agree, Mike, with your point about it. You know, it threw us off a bit. I mean, but I think that's because there was a big left hook that we weren't expecting and many in China were not expecting as well. And for many of my Chinese friends, it was when in 2018 they abolished the term limit on the office of the presidency. So I agree, yes, but I also think that it wasn't clear in late 2012 exactly who Xi Jinping was going to be. I mean, was gonna be. I was, as you guys know, I was in the White House at the time, so lived day by day through the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. And Jude, I think you made one of the critical points, which is the Chinese didn't expect Xi Jinping, right? I've said before what they were hoping for was a spicy, competent Hu Jintao. That's not what they got, right? They got somebody who was scorched earth when it came to anti-corruption, right? And my oh shit moment was in November of 2013 when the Chinese deployed that air defense identification zone in the East China Sea days before then Vice President Biden was prepared to go to Japan, Korea, and China. And I was like, whoa. And then we found out the MFA didn't know anything about it. If I can just make one point to foot stomp that. If it was clear who Xi Jinping was going to become, he never would have become general secretary because everyone who was subsequently purged, like Zhou Yongkong, would have stepped in and, and assassinated him. So even people very close connected, like a Zhou Yongkong, didn't see all of this coming well, well in advance. Looking at the time, no, we could go on all day, but want to mm-hmm. ask a question, and Mike, if you had a few to close us out. We've talked about sort of the structural forces and how those shape or constrain decision-making. We've also talked about agency. 
I wanted to ask the two of you how you think a EP3 2.0 would play out nowadays, given, Evan, as you mentioned in your upcoming report, the role of domestic politics. We now have a new media landscape and environment. You think about how much freedom Kennedy had in the Cuban Missile Crisis to play out a strategy where the most annoying thing was just the media at the daily you know, White House press conference asking questions and getting stonewalled. There wasn't the immediacy of social media. There wasn't open source, satellite imagery. If we think about a generic sort of crisis or we just replay a, a, some sort of a collision, can you, the two of you just talk about what would be same, but I think more importantly, what would be the new constraints or factors shaping decision-making that would make it harder or easier to navigate through that? I mean, I think first and foremost, it depends on to what extent there's loss of life and are there American Air Force personnel or Navy personnel on the ground being held in China? Those two factors matter enormously. But, I mean, the media environment, the political environment would put an enormous amount of pressure on the president to resolve this. And the real question becomes, you know, to what extent do the Chinese have the Chinese internalized lessons of EP3? I'm skeptical. And they'll actually open up communication channels and try to resolve this. Now, one of the virtues of having, you know, Xi Jinping as the core is he could resolve this very quickly and very effectively if he chose to. And the question is, is will he choose to do that? And does he face any domestic political constraints? I was on the job in fact, it was my first month when EP3 happened. And even with the San Francisco agreement to resume military-to-military dialogue, I suspect we are no better off 20-some years later in terms of crisis communication. I also think that Chinese side, if there is a crisis or escalation, will be much more adept than they were then in selling their narrative about events to Southeast Asia, Europe, Mm -hmm. and even to... um, I was going to say fellow travelers, but let's say sympathetic audiences in <laughs> countries like Australia or Korea or Japan. So I hope the administration is already thinking about this. I think Indo-PACOM and parts of the State Department are. But we have to, on the U.S. side, when something like this happened, knows immediately, we have to know immediately what are our options for communication. President Bush tried to reach Jiang Zemin 12 times, and the Chinese rejected every effort to get a call in mm-hmm. during the EP3. He eventually went through Brazil and Singapore to get to Jiang. I hope they're not assuming this new resumption of mill-to-mill communication is the magic button. Cause it's right. The same constraint exists before. Nobody wants to take the call because that person is then accountable for whatever happened, right? I mean, think about the balloon incident, right? In many ways, we just had a warm-up for this. Nobody would take the call on the Chinese side because they would then, that Chinese person would be held accountable when the Americans ultimately shot down the balloon. And as Mike rightly pointed out, I mean, it was impressive how vociferous their media and narrative machine was, which is, you know, this is not a spy balloon, it's not a spy balloon, and it's all your fault, and you're overreacting. And they, they stuck on that that line for a very, very long time. They're not, you, uh, you guys yeah. overreacted. It shows how crazy yeah. and politicized you China are. China would have dealt with a U.S. spy balloon over its territory with much more equanimity, yeah. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Their use of social media, they've learned from the Russians, they're just much more adroit than they were in, in 2001. So yeah, the bottom line is there probably will be some incident. You can almost count on it. And I hope the administration, with allies and partners, is already gaming what they'll do on the communications front. Ukraine shows that the administration is pretty good at strategic information uses of intelligence, but they better be gaming it through because what we've learned is the Chinese are better at it and they will use it for strategic advantage. 
So, Jude, if I could bring it back to the book, because one of the things that we end on in the book is sort of where are we going to go, right, in this new era of strategic competition? And there's some basic, some pretty fundamental things about the U.S.-China relationship today because we're in the early stages of the strategic competition that I find very worrisome. Things will probably get worse. The competition will intensify before things get better because the Chinese have not yet internalized the concept of strategic restraint. That, in other words, it's important for both sides to some some degree of restraint, whether it's a confidence-building measure, rules of the road, in any form. And until they believe that it makes sense for both sides to restrain themselves, as the U.S. and the Soviets did after the Cuban Missile Crisis, things are not likely to get better. Point number two, it's going to be really hard to manage the current era of strategic competition because of the difficulty of compartmentalization, right? Go back to the four categories of competition, security, economics, technology, and ideas and ideology, right? They're all interrelated with one another. Security competition has economic dimensions. Technology competition has an ideas element to it. And so the ability to compartmentalize competition without touching other areas of the relationship is going to be very, very hard because the arenas of competition are linked and nested. Point number three, the domestic politics are going to get worse before before they get better, right? I mean, I'm as great as things are after the Biden-Xi summit. I'm, what worries me is that in China, Xi Jinping has created sort of such an environment where loyalty to him is really the priority. And, you know, he said some pretty negative things about the United States. And I think that, you know, there's still not an environment in in China where people are going to be willing to start thinking constructively about the future of the U.S.-China relationship. So China's got its domestic politics. We've talked about domestic politics on our side. And until, I mean, the two sort of key factors for the long-term stability of the relationship is, number one, Beijing and Washington need to come up with – generate some kind of strategic modus vivendi, some type of theory of the case of how we're going to reach, let's call it competitive coexistence if that's the end point. So you need a strategic modus vivendi and you need some domestic consensus that supports that. Neither one of those exists. And my concern is that are we going to relearn the lesson of the Cold War, which was you need some very scary, searing, near-death experience in order for policymakers in both countries to move in, move toward those outcomes? Uh, great discussion, Evan and Jude. The book's Cold Rivals, The New Era of U.S.-China Strategic Competition, really unique in having deep, candid, strategic contributions from leading thinkers in the U.S. and China. So can't recommend it enough. Great having you. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Jude. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.